listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 91, the special Black Friday edition. We'll be speaking with two Our Walmart activists, Dan Schleiderman and Tiffany Faulkner. But first, the news. As part of Unite Here's Housekeepers Global Week of Action last week, the hospitality workers of Long Beach, California, rallied to push the city council to adopt a set of labor standards that would limit their workloads and strengthen protections against assault. The coalition behind the efforts, Stand with Women Against Abuse, a coalition of community as well as labor groups, says that offensive and predatory behavior at work is practically an occupational hazard for the mostly female hotel workforce. Overall, studies show that about 8 in 10 hotel workers have reportedly encountered some form of verbal aggression or harassment at work. The proposed solution that the Long Beach workers are putting forward is to provide staff with a panic button device, which would allow them to instantly summon emergency help if someone uh, jumps out and harasses them when they're in a building alone or stuck in a room alone. And uh, these buttons were actually first introduced to the hotel workforce in New York City under a labor contract between Unite Here and the city's major hotel employers. The Long Beach plan would also involve a guarantee of workers, uh, quote, right to be reassigned to an area other than the area where the assault occurred. And this would ensure that a worker who is harassed in a room does not have have to return to that room right away to clean it up when the person is still there. Another key component of the labor proposal being put forward is to limit a regular eight-hour day's workload to 4,000 square feet or 12 average-sized hotel rooms. Some workers report being asked to clean 18 rooms a day, which is the equivalent of 2.5 single-family homes in a single uh, eight-hour workday, which is uh, massive and incredibly stressful stressful, as well as rendering workers very vulnerable to injury. So overall, these arduous labor conditions, which involve both sexual harassment as well as just general overwork, um, they kind of work together to produce a toxic workplace environment. So workers say that because they are under so much enormous strain and pressure from their day-to-day workload, if something does happen, such as an incident of sexual harassment or sexual assault, they face enormous pressure simply due to their precarious labor conditions and the uncomfortable dynamics with employers that many simply feel unwilling to come forward with a claim of abuse. Uh, they're unwilling to risk losing perhaps their jobs if they are retaliated against or if their claim is denied. So amid all of that tension at work, um, they are now proposing a comprehensive uh, labor standard proposal that would apply to both union and non-union workers across Long Beach to bring up working standards for everybody. We're going to hear now from Nereida Soto. She is a Unite Here member, barista at a Long Beach hotel, whose aunt actually works as a housekeeper, and she was discussing why unions are so important for workers like her, not just to be protected at work from everyday occupational hazards, but also to have a real voice at work and to be able to control the conditions of their labor. I've worked non-union places and I could see the the difference here. Um, We have job security. I could see how at the other hotels, how scared these housekeepers are to speak up. They're so, so afraid that they will work overtime and not get paid for it just so they could keep their jobs. 
that's why we need a union. We need a union to protect our moms, our sisters, our aunts, our cousins. You know, all of these housekeepers and housemen are working overtime and double time without getting paid that. Of course, we need union. We need union because we need and we need respect. It's about respect and it's about human rights. If we respected each other and gave each other human rights, we wouldn't need a union. So, come on, let's be honest. These companies want us to basically work for nothing. They want slave labor and they want, at the end of the day, to keep all of that profit. They don't want to raise our wages. It's so hard for us here to, you know, fight for our rights. And we're union. Imagine them. Of course we need union. We need union because our union allows us to unite as a workforce and, you know, tell our bosses, no, I'm sorry, but if you want me to stay that extra hour, you have to pay me. I'm sorry, but I'm not doing 25 rooms because my union contract says that I only have to do 16. That was Nereida Soto of Unite Here in Long Beach, California. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen intensifying protests on college campuses around the nation. Last episode, I spoke to you about the University of Missouri, where the football team, among others, went on strike and forced the ouster of the university president. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen those protests spread to universities around the country. And in some cases, they're making labor demands part of their project. At the University of North Carolina, where there is a history of student labor organizing, the students interrupted a town hall held by university administrators to present 50 demands, which included uh, divestment from coal, they included abolishing the SAT in university admissions, and they included getting rid of the private contractors that currently run university services, um, including Aramark. They cite the history of 1970 cafeteria workers' strike on campus and how the privatization of food services came in just after that. They demand more aggressive recruitment of black faculty and faculty of color. They demand a university-wide minimum wage of $25 an hour that is commensurate with living costs of downtown Chapel Hill. They demand that administrators be compensated at the same rate as workers, one that makes me smile a little bit. And they demand the right to organize. They demand $15,000 per course for all adjunct faculty and quite a few other things, including free childcare and student athletes getting paid. So as we continue to watch these protests spread and see where the movement will go next, it is interesting to see it once again overlapping with existing labor organizing and with demands that are being made by workers on university campuses and how that combination can help these movements grow in tandem. So while Black Friday brings worker protests at Walmarts across the country, a different protest against Walmart is unfolding on the other side of the world. The International Labor Rights Forum is campaigning on the third anniversary of the Tazreen factory fire, uh, in which 112 garment workers were uh, killed in a so-called death trap factory in Bangladesh. The plant was ultimately linked to Walmart as well as other Western clothing brands, but Walmart was able to sort of wriggle out of liability by saying that uh, the factory was not a, quote, authorized supplier for Walmart's supply chain, meaning that it did not have a direct uh, tie to the subcontractor that was responsible for um, the horrific uh, fire safety violations at the factory that led to all those deaths. 
nonetheless, workers advocates across the country are putting pressure on Walmart uh, to pay up and provide just compensation to the victims of the Tazreen factory fire. A new charity has been established, the Tazreen Trust Fund, to issue long-term payouts to workers' families. So far, Walmart has not contributed a huge amount that they have contributed, uh, it appears, indirectly through a corporate-funded philanthropic outlet that it is involved with called BRAC. Um, BRAC recently donated about $250,000. What uh, labor advocates and consumer advocates want to see is something much more uh, in the line of, on the order of uh, millions. And meanwhile, Tezreen's victims continue to suffer from poverty. Many have lost the sole income earner in their families, or they're suffering debilitating injuries that prevent them from working. According to the International Labor Rights Forum, for the last three years, the families of those killed and injured have been fighting for compensation for the loss of their loved ones or the loss of their own ability to earn an income. And the trust fund finally offers some hope of long-term recompense. Walmart has yet to actually fess up to its culpability in the Tazreen factory fire. That's a whole other dynamic altogether. In addition, Walmart is also uh, balking at a new labor safety initiative called the Bangladesh Accord, which um, we've talked about on Belabored before, um, that would uh, go some way towards ensuring that future uh, factory accidents, building collapses, fires, things like that, are prevented um, through a comprehensive safety protocol and uh, comprehensive renovations to Bangladesh garment factories. So while Walmart heads into yet another holiday shopping season, it remains haunted by the ghosts of past labor violations as well as the grim poverty and exploitation that continues to loom over South Asia's manufacturing workers as long as Walmart continues its shady labor practices and continues to dominate the global manufacturing sector. This week, as our listeners in the United States are no doubt aware, was Thanksgiving, and that means that today, Belabored Day, is also Black Friday, the day that retailers count on to get themselves into the quote-unquote black. That is the day of big major sales and doorbuster opening times at some ungodly hour and like five in the morning. It is a day of, well, kind of hell for retail workers, and it has been the day over the past four years that Walmart workers have chosen to make their protests felt. This year, there are two separate campaigns taking place this week, both of them aimed at highlighting the hunger that Walmart employees too often face when they're trying to live on their meager wages. The United Food and Commercial Workers has put forward a campaign that involves a big ad buy and workers and supporters taking part in volunteering at food banks on on Black Friday to feed Walmart workers and call attention to the fact that Walmart workers are not paid enough to feed themselves. Meanwhile, our Walmart, the campaign of worker organizing at Walmart, is holding a Fast for 15, where workers and allies have undertaken various levels of fasting to call attention once again to the fact that Walmart workers are often paid not enough to feed themselves, and they have taken their fast, in many cases, to the doorsteps of Walmart executives, Walton family members like Alice Walton right here in New York City, 
and other people who make a lot of money while Walmart workers, well, if they're not exactly starving, they're certainly not able to afford a big fancy Thanksgiving meal. So to talk to us about the campaign this week, we are going to hear from a member of Our Walmart and also, to begin with, from Our Walmart co-director Dan Schlademan, who's going to explain to us the new structure that Our Walmart has undertaken this year, how that's helped with Black Friday, why they turned up on Hillary Clinton's doorstep, and more. Dan, tell me about um, how this week has gone with the workers fasting, leading up to Black Friday. Um, any response from Walmart yet? Well, things have been going amazingly. Um, you know, we've seen uh, incredible outpouring of support and participation. You know, when we launched the Faster 15 and, you know, a couple hundred Walmart workers really wanted to step out of the shadows of the hunger that they face and really take ownership of it by deciding that they were going to choose not to eat to demonstrate the issues of hunger at Walmart. To see 1,200 folks now that are, are joined with Walmart workers um, so that there's more than 1,400 people total engaged in the mm-hmm. fast is just, is just really incredible. Um, and then the actions that have been happening all across the country and the storytelling that's been happening and the support that we've been seeing has been, uh, been pretty exciting and, uh, you know, and we'll all build to Black Friday. Right. Um, and this is the, what is it, third, fourth Black Friday? This will be our fourth Black Friday. Uh, We will will have, uh, you know, for four years now, turned Black Friday into a day where there's an actual real debate about uh, what happens to the people who work in retail all year round. And, you know, we're excited to see that it's really becoming an annual tradition. The fast really struck me because one of the things, you know, that we hear about a lot about Walmart is they're a good Christian company. And so, you know, fasting really has that certain overtone, right? Fasting in particular against Walmart in particular, a company that likes to put itself forward as, as a Christian company, a family company. Was that something you guys thought about when planning it? I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I mean, I think certainly the, the challenge that, you know, sort of workers face in sort of trying to tell the true story of what it's like to work at Walmart versus the, the manufactured image that Walmart creates is always a part of the work that our Walmart is doing and, and that what our Walmart leaders are really trying to do. You know, I mean, Walmart simultaneously will spend its time sort of telling the public that, you know, we're this kind of a company. Um, and then at the same time, you know, put a lot of fear into its workforce to try to, you know, so that they do not speak out. And so, you know, this fast and sort of every action that, that our Walmart leaders have done has been to break through that and to tell the true story about the kind of poverty that people face at America's largest employer about, you know, the, the, disparance, the disparity in inequality that exists between the Walton family and, and an average Walmart worker. And so, um, you know, so I think all of those things are part of it, but, you know, but it, not that specific. I mean, I just think we're always trying to break through the, the sort of the Walmart um, manufactured image. Walmart is a, a particularly well-connected company. When I spoke to Tiffany Faulkner, she told me about their trip to Hillary Clinton's campaign office because Hillary Clinton used to be on the board of Walmart. Um, and their demand for her to speak out on, particularly on conditions at Walmart. Is that something you guys plan on continuing as the campaign goes on? Of course. I mean, I think, you know, our, our goal is going to be to, you know, talk to anybody that has influence, uh, you know, either directly or indirectly, uh, you know, and can help move the, the conversation about what's wrong at Walmart. And, you know, certainly Hillary has, an, uh, you know, incredible influence. I mean, her relationship to Walmart as being a member of the board of Walmart for many years, uh, the relationship that, you know, her and uh, her husband have with Walmart going back to the days in Arkansas, 
you know, the relationship that they have with the uh, the Walton family. Um, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. And so a, an important place for Walmart workers to go to really tell their story will be, uh, you know, directly to Hillary and as well as other elected officials yeah. or and those trying to, you know, become the next president of our country. I mean, inequality is an issue that is ripping our country apart, and the next uh, person in office needs to be somebody who's going to deal with that issue. And it's one of the questions Walmart workers want to know from Hillary. Speaking of Walmart's power, there was kind of a blockbuster story this week about just how far Walmart is willing to go to keep an eye on the organizing you guys have been doing at Walmart. In case our listeners have not heard this yet, why is the FBI's terrorism task force keeping an eye on you again? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, the background on this, just very quickly, is that uh, as a result of the uh, ongoing uh, legal case that we have in front of the federal government over a legal firing of strikers from 2013, we were we got our hands on um, a large amount of documents from Walmart that um, were part of the discovery of that case. And um, inside of those documents were documents that, uh, you know, said that Walmart was coordinating with the FBI Terrorism Task Force uh, in relationship to uh, Walmart workers' strike in 2013 and the ride for respect. Uh, they have an ongoing relationship with Lockheed Martin, the same people who make nuclear weapons, uh, who are uh, tracking uh, the work and of our Walmart and, and our allies. Um, and so, uh, so that that story has gotten exposed uh, just today and or this week. And uh, you know, we hope it's going to really shine a light on uh, you know the, the kind of activity that Walmart will engage in. And it also just yeah. tells the story of how powerful our Walmart is. I mean, if Wal- you know, Walmart on one hand says that our Walmart doesn't have any power, but then on the other hand, it's, uh, you know, feels the need to engage these giants to, uh, you know, get an upper hand on these on, on their poor workers who are just trying to win 15 in full time. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly speaks to what a small group of organized workers has been able to do to a, a massive company. So when we're talking about our Walmart and and where things are now, um, you have kind of a different structure right now than you have for for most of the organization's existence. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and who some of the partners are that are uh, keeping the organization going? Yeah, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got a new broad set of partners, um, you know, which is, you know, they've always been sort of folks that have been um, working in solidarity, but, you know, now we're we're in deep planning and deep strategizing together. I think, you know, the shift that what's happening in our Walmart is, is that the campaign truly is moving to be more of a movement-wide campaign. And so, you know, the list of organizations are, you know, online organizations like Color of Change and Credo uh, and, you know, uh, other alt-labor organizations like Rock and the domestic workers and uh, community organizations that are out there doing great work like NPA and the Alliance for Just Society and USAS, the list goes on and on. And, you know, it's just they've been folks have really been incredible and, you know, really know that that this is such an important campaign for the future of our economy, for the future of our democracy uh, and, you know, and for the future of work in our country. And so it's really been exciting to, you know, to get into these partnerships and, you know, the they're really just getting started, and we're going to together be building out, you know, the longer-term plan for the organization, um, you know, which I think, uh, you know, we're all really incredibly excited about. While we're looking at all of these different protests, all of these different movements going on around the country right now, it's, well, I'm writing a book about this, as most labor listeners probably know, is the the rise, once again, of, of disruptive protests. 
we're seeing more strikes, we're seeing more um, direct actions, we're seeing all kinds of, you know, street heat to call the questions of inequality. So um, can you talk about the importance of organizing Walmart workers in the context of all the other things that are going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's an exciting moment that's, that's taking place where there's a paradigm shift in organizing that's really starting to take place. And, you know, with any sort of paradigm shift, um, you know, sort of folks in the status quo always get very uncomfortable with it. But, you know, people are beginning to see that there is true power in, in, you know, in getting outside of the forms of a lot of institutions that have controlled things like, you know, legal structures and everything else. And so, I think for, you know, simply for our Walmart, I mean, when the organization from its foundation said we're not going to wait for uh, the federal government or Walmart to say you have a right to build this organization, we're going to build this organization and we're going to use uh, our voices and our feed and our bodies, um, you know, to make change at Walmart, you know, I think when we started four years ago, nobody would have ever believed that we could make the kind of change that we've made, right, winning wage increases for a half a million workers and changing national pregnancy policies and putting real press on the company on hours and, you know, sort of all of this, the, the store-wide victories that have happened, you know, and so that's been, you know, and, and sort of all the work that Walmart workers have been doing has been happening in the climate of the Fight for 15 movement, which again is showing that uh, together everybody can truly change a national debate about really critical issues. And, you know, so I just think, you know, if any, you know, the, while, yes, these campaigns have not resulted in sort of the traditional victories that labor um, often looks at and measures a campaign by, mm-hmm. um, you know, nobody can sort of say that these campaigns have not had a huge impact and are, and are really demonstrating that there is a different path here to victory for workers. And, you know, and I think, you know, I think what's exciting about it is we're on that path, and that path is going to take us, continue to take us down the road. And, you know, as long as we stay on the path and continue to fight forward, we're going to win bigger and bigger things. Who would have ever thought that Walmart giving a raise to a half million workers, you know, the latest calculation now is is when you when you take all the companies that followed it and the money that it's gonna cost for, for other companies to uh do the same as Walmart, it's yeah. gonna put seven billion dollars in the hands of low wage workers. You know, that's incredible, you know, and that's gonna be good for our economy, that's good for, you know, every one of those workers and you know, it's putting the kind of pressure that our you know, we need to put on private corporations to you know, do what they need to do, and they have a lot more they need to do. Yeah, I um, this week I noticed that um, some of the actions are not just at Walmart stores, but literally at the homes of members of the Walton family, of the Walmart board. Talk about the the significance of sort of calling out these very, 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 very wealthy individuals. Um, <laughs> as part of this campaign and as part of a, a broader discussion of inequality. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think when when Walmart workers launched our Walmart in 2004, you know, the Walton family really were unknown, um, you know, even though they were, the, you know, they're one of the richest families on the planet. And so, you know, there really was a strategic plan to say, like, we need to really raise up the fact that the Walton family has as much money as they have because, you know, one of the biggest arguments that Walmart would always make was, you know, we can't afford to raise wages because, you know, it'll cost customers money. And so, you know, workers really understood that they had to win that argument and take that argument away from the company. And what better way to take away that argument than point out that Walmart has created 
a family that has the same equivalent wealth of 42% of Americans. And so, you know, and we would give, you know, huge, huge credit to Occupy. I mean, Occupy shifted the debate around inequality in our country and, you know, made the ability to talk about um, billionaires in a very, very different way than, than sort of the way that you were able to do it before before Occupy, um, you know, and so I think those things together have really taken the, Walt, the Walton family from being sort of hidden in the shadows to now any article that really talks about or any conversation that's happening about inequality in America, the Walton family is listed as, you know, a part of that problem. Um, you know, so I think, you know, that pressure is important. I think, the, you know, and we're going to continue to put pressure on the Walton family until Walmart workers get what they need um, because, there's no reason why six people should have the kind of wealth that they have um, while there are so many of their workers struggling to put food on the table. And that was Dan Schleiderman, co-director of Our Walmart. And now we're going to hear from Tiffany Faulkner, a longtime Our Walmart member and somebody who has been on a fast for 15 days leading up to Black Friday and came to New York to take her fast to Alice Walton and to Hillary Clinton. So, Tiffany, tell me how your week has been um, here in New York and what, what you've been doing here. It's been a very powerful week out being out here in New York, outside of Alice Walton's condo, fasting, part of our past, our 15 days worth of fasting for uh, 15. We've mm-hmm. also joined in with other uh, movements. We yeah. went out and supported the vendors of New York in their fight, and we went out and joined the airport strikers. Yeah, we've yeah. done a lot of things this week outside of just focusing on ourselves. Yeah. But we also went and delivered our letters to Hillary Clinton's uh-huh. um, office. Yeah. Asking her to support us and asking and demanding 15 and full time at Walmart. And for people who don't know, what is Hillary Clinton's connection to Walmart that made that important to do? Hillary Clinton sat on the board of directors at Walmart for a while. You know, and, and she's running for president, so it was good to, you know, at least pull, pull out her heartstrings to say, hey, you know, yeah. I'm running for president, and use, just to use her as a or a good representative for censoring our fight. So tell me about your story. Why are you here taking part in this fast for 15? So I'm out here this week and fasting to support all Walmart workers who can't stand up for themselves. Every day Walmart workers go hungry silently, and it needs to end because Walmart can afford to pay us better that we can take care of ourselves and our family. Did I hear correctly that you had been retaliated against recently? Yes. Yeah, so um, I was retur- terminated August 1st um, as part of a re- retaliation for standing out. I've been a member of our Walmart for four years, maybe almost five. I've been on uh-huh. strike four times. I've been the sit-in strike in Southern California. And they finally did the final retaliation against me and terminated me um, a few months ago. But you're not giving up on, on the fight? 
No, I'm not giving up on the fight. It's important for not only Walmart workers, but for all workers, because if we can change Walmart, we can change the narrative for all workers, because Walmart is the number one richest employer of the U.S., and we've, we've proven that they, the other organizations and other employers follow their lead. When we mm-hmm. got the raises for the workers to nine dollars this year and ten dollars next year. You also right. saw T J Maxx and um Target and other employers change their their wages as well. So why why a fast this this time? What's the significance of that particular action? So this year we were looking to do something different. We've always done strikes and uh we wanted to focus on the fact that Walmart workers go hungry pilotly, mm-hmm. and the best way to do that was to basically go on a hunger strike, not necessarily a hunger strike, but, you know, to go on a fast to show what workers go through every day. Yeah. You know, they don't have a choice whether they're going to eat or not, and we just wanted to do a do this fast in solidarity with those that can't afford to feed themselves every day. Have you gotten any response from, you know, I know you've been outside of Alice Walton's house. Have you gotten any response from her? Did you get any response from Hillary Clinton's office? So we haven't gotten a response from Alice Walton. We knew she was at her condo um, Uh earlier this week, so we haven't heard anything from her. But when we went to Hillary Clinton's office, one of her representatives came out and spoke to us. So that was really great. We had a – that was a, kind of tough because nobody wanted to come down at first, but mm-hmm. we, we, we were very persistent and got someone to come down, and it was very empowering to be able to speak our concerns to one of her representatives. Yeah. What did they say? She was saying that Hillary is fighting and believe, fighting for better wages, and for, you know, she stands for families and working people. So, yeah, she was very supportive and said that Hillary's on our side with increasing raising the wages and, you know, for the workers. Yeah. But she didn't say that she would endorse the $15 an hour? Well, that was part of my ask, but she hasn't, she hasn't called out on that yet. Yeah. But we're asking Hillary to call out Walmart to raise the wages for the workers and call out for them to raise raise the wages and for consistent full time. So where are you headed now? What's the the plan for the rest of the week as we lead up to Black Friday? So the rest of the week we have actions going on across the country for to continue the fast. And so we have actions going on in the Bay Area in, in California uh-huh. on Tuesday at Greg Center's house. He's right. on the board as well. And yeah. it will be leading up to Black Friday where we'll have actions across the country supported by workers and community to break the fast. And also workers will be continuing their fast for the rest of the week. So we understand that, that our Walmart has changed its structure a little bit recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So our Walmart has always been focused on um, their workers and right. giving us a voice. So it's yep. always been independent, worker-led, 
but we did always have a large support of funding from UOCW. Mm-hmm. Well, they decided that they were going to change and change the direction. Mm-hmm. And so that has just caused the workers to be more in the front lines and be more in control of our own or of our own organization. And we're all stepping up and taking on the responsibility to make that happen. Excellent. And um, can you tell me what you have planned for Black Friday, since the, as people are listening to this, it will be uh, already happening? Yeah, so any anybody that's interested in going to or starting an action for Black Friday can go to www.protest.blackfriday.com. And they can go mm-hmm. there and find out any actions that are going on in their areas that they can join or they can start their own. There's also a lot of materials on there that's easy to um, start their own actions in support Excellent. of the Walmart workers. Excellent. Um, anything else you want people to know as the uh, as the, the struggle continues? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important that workers feel the support from the community mm-hmm. because they don't think that people care. And just to see how, even for me, to see the, the amount of support we've gotten here from the community is tremendous. And just for people to stand in solidarity with us saying, you know, Walmart is the number one richest employer and they can afford to pay the workers what they're worth. So that you're not mm-hmm. struggling and not having to rely on food stamps or any public assistance would be uh-huh. great. And, you know, Walmart is responding to our Fast for 15 about saying how they put $2.7 million into the workers, but that's not true. Because yeah. even though they raise the wages, they cut hours. So the workers aren't really seeing that $2.7 million. They're, that's just their way of saying or trying to show to the community that they're for the workers, but they're not. Because even mm-hmm. though they raise the wages, they cut hours. So the workers aren't right. really seeing it anyway. And that was Tiffany Faulkner and Dan Schladman of Our Walmart speaking ahead of the Black Friday protests. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARGH! I wish I'd written that. Read and liked and wish we had written this week, but did not. My pick for the week is Peter Cole's essay in In These Times magazine. Was overcome with anti Japanese xenophobia during World War II, one union fought back. So the terrorist attacks in Paris have unleashed a stunning but sadly predictable backlash against immigrants and Muslims in both the US and Europe. Many have pointed to past incidents in which Americans have opposed taking in refugees based on similarly irrational fears and biases, including the shameful rejection of Jewish refugees from Europe during World War II. Peter Collett in these times looks at a more obscure historical footnote in which ordinary American workers fought to protect the rights of an immigrant community wrongly maligned as a national security threat. Japanese Americans, both 
new immigrants as well as U.S.-born Japanese Americans had always faced considerable prejudice as well as exclusionary immigration policies prior to the war. But after the attack on Pearl Harbor, a massive surge of anti-Japanese racism triggered President Roosevelt to order mass roundups and detentions of Japanese Americans living in coastal communities. Amidst the exploding racial tensions, Cole writes, the leader of the U.S. Army in the West, General John L. DeWitt, claimed that at the time, in the war in which we are now engaged, racial affinities are not severed by migration. The Japanese race is an enemy race. In other words, even though not a shred of evidence linked a single one of these Americans to espionage, their crime was being Japanese or an American of Japanese parentage. These Americans languished miserable and downtrodden for about three years in internment camps, also known as concentration camps. Peter Cole goes on to note that for the most part, labor unions did not stand up to defend the rights of these Japanese Americans, even though many had been fellow workers who had been involved in various labor struggles earlier. But one militant leftist union, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, or the ILWU, did stand up to the status quo and refused to cave to the xenophobic panic. They defied Franklin Delano Roosevelt's executive order, they condemned the mass detention of Japanese Americans, and they championed the anti-racist social justice principles that their radical antecedents, the industrial workers of the world, had also carried the torch for. Cole writes, Many more socialists and communists, militant dock workers, had created the union in the depths of the Great Depression and committed it to total equality. The union's policy, literally putting the ideal of equality into practice, was predicated upon the common-sense, working-class notion of solidarity. It can be summed up in its motto, an injury to one is an injury to all, first coined by the earlier, even more radical union, the Wobblies. Crucially, the ILWU commitment to equality included ethnic and racial equality, another legacy of the Wobblies. So looking back at this moment of national crisis that Peter Cole writes about, it was for many labor unions a shameful chapter in their organizational histories. It really showed the sort of moral cowardice of many organized labor institutions at the time. So against that backdrop, it's kind of amazing that the ILWU managed to push back against the political establishment and push back even against their own fellow trade unionists. So convinced were they that they were standing on the side of justice and in turn on the right side of history. Labor unions today have, in many respects, become more attuned to the need to resist racist and xenophobic tendencies, particularly in this globalized economy where workers around the world are all engaged in similar parallel struggles. But during times of war, and that includes the so-called war on terror, when the public is in the grip of fear and prone to irrational thinking, public institutions, government, and yes, labor unions are no exception, can easily give in to the ugliest forms of bigotry and chauvinism. But by practicing principles of equity and justice on a day-to-day -day basis, at work, in school, and in our streets, workers can build the bonds of community and solidarity that can help protect society from falling prey to those more sinister impulses in times of crisis. So... With that in mind, when we're looking at the refugee crisis unfolding on the other side of the Atlantic, remember it's important to be vigilant now before the social climate grows even more hostile. 
before the divisions grow even deeper so that when crisis really does hit in your hometown, you'll know the right thing to do and one day history just might vindicate you. And since I was speaking of the University of Missouri athlete students and the ones at University of North Carolina, it is fitting that my ARG for this week is a piece by Amanda Hess at the New York Times Magazine titled The Cult of the Amateur. And what I love about this piece is that Amanda Hess manages to tie amateur porn, Ben Carson and Donald Trump's popularity on the campaign trail, student athletes, and much, much more into a solid piece that sort of explains some things about Americans and our ideas towards work. So it is a piece that starts out with Ben Carson and his being bad at being a politician and how he cites that the Ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic was built by professionals. The fact that people are sick of politicians in both parties and are looking at outsiders, whether those be, you know, Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, or on the other side, the you know brain surgeon Ben Carson, and, well, we won't talk about Donald Trump too much here. That may be symptomatic of our distrust for politicians, but she argues that it's also something to do with the way we've glamorized amateur labor in this country, um, which, as most of you listeners know, is kind of an obsession of mine. Um, She talks about the way the word amateur comes from the Latin amateur, or lover, and how the amateur is, of course, somebody who's supposed to do their work for love. What that tells us is, well, something about them and something about us. She writes, the idea of effortless authenticity is so attractive that members of the American establishment have vied for more than a century to buy, cheat, or counterfeit their way to amateur status. In 1732, Poor Richard's Almanac circulated the colonies as the work of, quote, Poor Richard Saunders, an amateur collector of factoids who dispensed commonsensical values and homespun wisdom. Runaway sales of the Almanac series eventually turned its true publisher, Ben Franklin, into one of the colony's wealthiest men. Who said amateurism never made anybody rich? The Gilded Age, of course, recast amateurism as for the rich, and these days we still see that sort of amateur spirit being touted in the name of keeping people poor, like the, you know, student-athletes who don't get paid, and if they don't happen to be some of the lucky few who get lucrative professional contracts and don't get injured on the way, they never make any money on the work while the college makes all of the money. But what's happening is this idea of the labor of love amateur is, of course, infiltrating our workplaces and affecting our bottom line. So, well, you all know me. You'll be hearing more about this topic soon, but I encourage you to check out Amanda's piece. We will, of course, put a link to it and everything else we've discussed on today's show at the Descent website. You can find the links there. You can reach us. Let us know if you are a student athlete or student protester, if you are a Walmart worker, current former or, in fact, future. If you are a hotel housekeeper or have been sexually harassed at work, anything that you want to talk to us about, we want to hear from you. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Happy, happy Black Friday. Hope you're out there making trouble, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured. This life is hard. So hard I must go. So far oppressors. No
This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate twin to five, hell nah, we can't go.